Welcome, welcome, and thank you for tuning into this week's episode of Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, where the most gruesome, the most horrific, the most high-profile homicide cases in Maryland, they are discussed, they are examined, and they are profiled. Now, I know I took a little break. I know it's been a minute since I released an episode and everything. Um, even though we're not done with season eight yet, um, a lot of if a lot of people don't know, or if my listeners don't know, that my mother recently passed away over Labor Day weekend, and I just been trying to deal with all of that. So I've kind of been out of commission for a minute, um, but I've missed you guys, and now I'm back. Now I'm trying to get back in the swing of things and back to what I know and back to what I do best. Now, um, since we were on season eight, we're going to stick to what we were focusing on. And um, that season, we were dealing with parasite killings. And according to LethalDictionary.com, the word parasite is defined as the murder of a closer relative. It could be like your siblings, like a brother or sister, or the victim could be like your aunt, or uncle, your cousin, or any other close relative. And you would think that if you kill like a parent or something like that, that that would automatically net you in, you know, like a life sentence. But apparently that does not happen in the state of Maryland. And mostly all of the murderers or the killers that have been profiled in this season, season eight, they have already served their time. They have moved on, you know, for various reasons. Um, They have been released and they have moved on with their lives. And for those listeners who are truly familiar with me and my story, no, I will not be profiling or discussing the murder of my father because that case has already been profiled for TV One several times. And that's pretty much like old news now. You know, I really don't want to focus on that right now. You can already check all of that on my Payback episode, my Justice By Any Means episode, or you can just simply click on the episode entitled Why I Do What I Do. But for this season, season eight, the topic, the focus or topic of discussion, again, will be killers who, for whatever reason, have murdered their mother or their father or their grandparents or their caretaker. Basically, killers who have been accused and convicted of murdering a parent or a grandparent. So, for this season, season eight, and this episode, uh, the killer or the murder. The uh, murder that I am going to profile is the murder of 58-year-old blogger and podcaster Dennis Lane. And like I have done in every single episode that have been featured on this podcast, a portion will be dedicated to an unsolved homicide that needs special attention or needs to be reopened or something because basically not a lot, if anything, is being done anymore at all. And the unsolved murder that I am going to profile for this episode is the unsolved murder of 21-year-old Kimberly Marie Bach. 
Now, I'm just going to say it and put it out there like this. This is 2023. Now, kids can be your pride and joy. Or they can be the biggest downfall in your life. Not all kids are like this. Some kids are cute and sweet and cuddly and adorable. They make you proud. They're, you know, good creations that eventually morph into responsible adults. I would say the majority of kids are like that. But let's be honest. Some kids are not. It don't matter what the parents are. Some kids are just evil. Pure and simple. Like, and there's no real excuse. You can blame it on mental illness. You can blame it on, you know, uh, oh, I was raised in, you know, this type of environment or whatever. But, you know, it's this, that's not a real explanation as to why some kids just turn out to be evil, in my opinion. And they don't always show any signs that they are troubled or, you know, feeling a certain type of way towards their parents either. To me, in my opinion, the kids that don't argue, the ones that don't, you know, communicate, the ones that are quiet, the ones that don't yell, they don't show their emotions, the quiet ones, they are the ones who are the most dangerous to me. They are the type of kids that you should be watching. Take, for instance, the case of Morgan Lane Arnold. Now, according to articles in the Baltimore Sun, 14-year-old Morgan Lane Arnold was like one of those outcast social misfits type of kids at uh, her high school, which was, she went to Mount Hebron High School in Columbia, which is not a bad school. Morgan had been a student at Ellicott Mills Middle School before coming to Mount Hebron, where she took classes in technology at the school, which these are not easy classes. As a child, Morgan had some issues with being around other little kids and uh, Morgan's mother once uh, told the press that most of the time as a toddler, even as like a two or three year old, Morgan would, she would just zap out and would just get hysterical and throw tantrums every time she got around other little kids. Now, that's not normal. I mean, that doesn't, I don't, you know, that's, I mean, some kids kind of, you know, kirk out a little bit when they get around other kids. But throwing tantrums and all that every time you get around other kids, I wouldn't necessarily say that's normal. Anyway, later on, as Morgan grew up, she was diagnosed with anxiety, depression, schizoaffective disorder, attention deficit disorder, and Asperger's syndrome. Morgan's parents were never married and they lived in separate, ho separate homes, but sometimes they didn't always agree on how they should raise or how they should co-parent or, you know, basically how they should co-parent Morgan because Morgan's mother, she considered Morgan to be like some type of special needs kid who needed babying up and coddling and all of this because she was so hypersensitive to other people. And she considered her daughter to be this little sweet, innocent kid who needed all of this help and assistance and therapy and counseling and medication and pills and everything to keep her stabilized. While on the flip side, Morgan's father didn't think that nothing out of the ordinary was wrong with his daughter. And he was trying to make her grow up where she was, you know, out of his house, you know, make her more independent 
And, you know, when she spent time with him over his house, he took her out on vacations. Um, he was trying to, you know, make basically make her grow up. Um, they went out on vacations all the time. They He would take her for hot air balloon rides. Um, he would try to help her with her homework, try to get her to study on her own. Um, he, Morgan's father, who was 58-year-old Dennis Lane, he went to all of Morgan's parent-teacher conferences at her school. Um, she didn't, and like I said, she, it wasn't like she was in a special school. Uh, this was a decent school in Howard County, which is one of our, the, the highest rated school district in the state. It wasn't an easy school, you know, to get into. Um, so basically he was trying to make her be more independent. Um, and he was trying to make her morph into, uh, a woman who he was trying to basically train her to be a woman who could take care of herself and wouldn't need to consult or ask her parents on every single issue or every single decision, you know. But Morgan wasn't going, she wasn't outgoing or social like her peers. And she stood out at her school where she spent most of her time just playing Minecraft, which I didn't even know Minecraft was out back then. But anyway, that's how she met another kid at Mount Hebron High School who was mentally just like her on her same level. 19-year-old Jason Anthony Bulmer, who was from the 8800 block of Town and Country Boulevard in Ellicott City, was also a little emotionally challenged, but the two clicked. You know how they say, you know, two people who think alike actually click? So they clicked, and in November of 2012, they both started dating and became like, you know, teenage boyfriend and girlfriend situation. But Morgan reportedly had issues with her father and she simply just didn't like him or love him. And eventually Morgan started telling Jason about how much she hated her father and how much she wanted him out of her life. Morgan's father, who was a graduate of John Carroll University, he had worked as a commercial real estate broker, but his passion, what he loved to do, was podcasting and getting his voice out there. Um, he was a podcaster and blogging um, and a blogger. That's what he loved to do. And the successful, well-known businessman from Columbia, he wrote blogs, uh, wrote a blog called uh, Tale of Two Cities. And he co-hosted a podcast uh, called And Then There's That. Morgan's father, he wrote using the name Word Bones. And he loved to talk about politicians uh, who lived and worked in his hometown of Columbia or Howard County. Dennis also loved to focus on topics of conversation that involved his friends and his family. Dennis absolutely doted on his daughter. But for some reason, I guess because she had all this mental stuff supposedly wrong with her, Morgan hated her father and she wanted him out of her life. And eventually, she just wanted him dead. Being out of her life wasn't good enough. Morgan uh, told Jason how she felt about her father. And together, they started making plans about how they were going to get rid of him for good. They both started texting each other about how they were going to kill her father and his, fian and his fiance. For more than two months, both Jason and Morgan planned and discussed 
how Dennis' life was going to end. And after Dennis was out of the picture, Morgan and Jason could run away to California and live the life of their little sweet little dreams. These little dumbass, childish ass dreams of teenagers that even sound dumb when you say it out loud. Honestly, for real. I mean, two weeks before the murder, two weeks before this was even supposed to happen, Morgan wrote about her thoughts of her hatred for her father in her journal. And in her words, she wrote, I love to see people die. It makes me happy. And she wrote about how because her father had yelled at her that she hated him because she felt more like his pet than his daughter because he yelled at her. Either way, Morgan was flat out sick and tired of her father for no real obvious reason. There was no abuse. There was no mistreatment. There was no neglect. In fact, it was just the opposite of, of that. In fact, all Dennis ever did was love on her. He, he gave his daughter some rules. You know, that's what he's supposed to do as a father. But because he didn't coddle her and treat her like a baby, Morgan wanted him dead. On May 10th, 2013, after Morgan left the door unlocked so Jason could get in, Jason crept into Morgan's home that she shared with her father in the 8100 block of Winding Ross Way in Ellicott City. Armed with a kitchen carving knife, Jason had finally set out to do what Morgan kept pushing, kept urging him to do. And when Jason came upstairs and found the podcaster in his bedroom, Jason approached him and stabbed him ten times in his throat, ending his life. The plan was to also kill Dennis's fiance, but luckily she was not home at the time that Dennis was killed. Morgan called 911, and when the police showed up, they found both Morgan and Jason sitting in another bedroom, side by side, on a bed. With Jason's hands and clothes drenched in Dennis's blood, Jason immediately confessed to the police that he was indeed the murderer or the killer. But check this out. Jason added a twist to it. Right when he saw the police, he actually was like, he blurted out to the police, I'm the one who did it, but she told me to. And Morgan had absolutely no remorse at all. She admitted to all of this. Both Morgan and Jason were arrested on the scene immediately. They were held without bail and charged as adults for the murder of Morgan's father. Dennis was pronounced dead at the scene. The murder of the beloved blog, blogger and podcaster affected so many people in his community and over 300 people showed up to pay their respects at his funeral. At Morgan's trial, in court, Morgan's mother insisted to anybody who would listen that her daughter was mentally ill and needed treatment, not an extensive prison sentence. But like I said... Morgan showed absolutely no type of remorse or sympathy for her actions when examined by her psychiatrist. Instead, Morgan told her therapist that she was glad that her father was dead and that her fantasy came true. And in the courtroom, Morgan was allowed to bring in stuff like toys and books to help comfort her anxiety issues. 
Like, who don't get anxious when they go in a courtroom? That's my question. I mean, am I allowed to bring in dolls and toys and coloring books and stuff like that when I see a judge? But Jason was racked with guilt. He was racked with guilt. And he quickly pled guilty to first-degree murder in 2014. Before Jason received a 30-year prison sentence on July 21st, 2014, Jason did tell the court that he had been haunted by nightmares ever since he committed the brutal slaying. And Jason told the court in his words, I wish in my heart I didn't do it because it hurt a lot of people. Morgan decided to plead guilty to murder on May 26, 2016. And shortly after she pled guilty, like Jason, Morgan also received a life sentence with all but 30 years suspended. Now, I'm just going to say it like this. And like I said, watch I get a lot of feedback for this one. Um, she had all, supposedly had all this stuff wrong with her anxiety, depression, Asperger's, blah, 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 blah. Um, so does that excuse that, is that an excuse for murder? Because your father yelled at you? Because your father told you, you know, probably some, to do some chores? No, I, I do not think that she should have been babied up. I think that was part of the problem. I think her father was absolutely right. You know, I didn't know her or anything like that. But according to my research and um, the research that I have found out, um, you know, a jury felt differently. Or not even, I won't say a jury felt differently, but a judge felt differently um, and felt that obviously mental illness was not a factor in this particular case. And I believe she just, basically wanted him dead because she didn't want to follow his rules simple as that and like i said from the beginning some teener teenagers or or kids are literally just born evil just like that it, it ain't nothing that the parents did wrong it ain't nothing that the parents did wrong they always want to blame it like you know if a kid did something wrong especially if they kill you that it's in some kind of way it's the parents fault i mean you know not necessarily sometimes they just want the best for you and you're just an evil ass kid who don't want to listen simple as that and and it ain't nothing wrong i don't believe that that even though she had all these mental mental issues supposedly wrong with her like i said there's still no justification to plan your father's murder if you can plan and discuss a murder and go through all of that and go through a a, a decent school like that and go take technology classes then you are not insane you are you're not incompetent you're competent to stand trial and no you don't need treatment for that. You need prison time. I feel sorry for the boy. I mean, it always seems like a boy is being manipulated in situations like this, where a boy is being made to do the dirty work because the person who really planned it can't do it. You know, and then after they do it, they have to live with what they did for the rest of their life for somebody who probably don't give a fuck about them no more. That's the real punishment. I mean, at least he showed remorse. At least he showed some type of sympathy you know, for his actions and regret doing them. I feel like he was manipulated. Simple as that. Um, I had to include this case as one of Marilyn's most notorious um, parasite murder cases simply for the fact that um, this man was a fellow podcaster and also he was a, a blogger. 
this he was a fellow podcaster before podcasting was really hot and everything before it was a really a real um you know before everybody had one now and you know in my opinion um i believe that this case was it didn't get a lot of uh attention but it stood out for me and i remember when it happened and i was just like wow you know what did he do to her to make her do this you know it seemed like she had a decent life other than the fact that you know, kids always hate when their parents, when they're growing up in two-parent homes and stuff like that. But that's still a justification to stab your father, to plan his murder, have him stabbed ten times in the throat while he sleep. Wow. <laughs> unbelievable. These kids these days, I swear to God, unbelievable. And then she's like 14? I mean, you should be, like like she said, she's playing Minecraft. But instead, you're planning murders. At 14, again, these kids these days are on another level. Really? 14? A female. Wow. Mm-mm-mm. And now we're going to move right on into this episode's Unsolved Homicide. And just like in every episode that has been in this podcast, although a lot of attention and focus is placed on homicide cases where they may have received a lot of press, a lot of attention... Uh, a lot of people talked about it because it had a lot of media coverage. This podcast also shines a light on the many homicide cases that we see in this state that do not receive a lot of attention. They don't receive a lot of press, if any at all. You might read about it. You might hear about it like something on Murder, Inc. Maybe once or twice. These type of murders are so common in this state that there is not a lot of time to focus on just one. Especially if it happened like like a minute ago. Sometimes when a person gets murdered in this lovely state of Maryland, you don't hear nothing else about it other than the initial report. And the number of homicides that are unsolved in this state, it's completely, completely staggering. Unbelievably, really. I mean, it's obvious that homicide detectives, they can't do it all like what you might see on TV on the first 48 you know, in Maryland, it's just not like that. It's just really not. The homicide detectives, they are often, they're overworked. They're underpaid. They're understressed. Um, they don't, they have cases where you need a freaking ma- magician to solve them because um, they're outnumbered. Because they kept busy all the time. And what happens to these cases, because nobody is talking at all. Nobody is coming forward. You can't build a case on just a whole bunch of what ifs. You know, what happens when there are absolutely no clues, no evidence, no witnesses whatsoever? Or what happens to those cases where because of the victim's past or the victim's lifestyle, where it seems like the detectives, it kind of seems like they really ain't trying to investigate the case because the victim, quote unquote, um, they might have had it coming. Maybe they were selling drugs. Maybe they was out tricking or doing whatever the hell they had to do. You know, it just seemed like those kind of cases get put on the back burner a little bit. In my opinion, I mean, or it just seemed like with those cases, the killer or killers simply just got away with murder. It just seems like literally nothing is done with these forgotten homicides. Not because nobody cares anymore, but because the, the public... They simply forgot all about it because we've been bombarded by new homicides. It's like we've been immune to homicides in this state. Well, 
on this podcast, although I do talk about cases where the murder did receive a lot of attention and notoriety, on the flip side, a focus is also on homicide cases that did not receive the amount of attention that they deserve. And with that being said, this episode's unsolved homicide is the murder of 21-year-old Kimberly Marie Bach. On July 21st, 1982, 21-year-old Kimberly Marie Bach, she spent the last hours of her life drinking at various bars throughout the neighborhood of Arbutus. Drinking and partying with several of her friends, just basically bar hopping. Around 2 a.m., she made her way to the Brooklyn neighborhood of mainly on Hanover Street to a bar in Hanover Street in Baltimore City where she was last seen alive. Later that same day, her body was found in Shelbourne Field in the 5200 block of Shelbourne Road back in the Arbutus area. The only known case of death was trauma to her body and to this day, the police still don't have a clue in this 41-year-old unsolved homicide. 41-year-old homicide, and that's a shame, y'all. So y'all already know what time it is. Y'all already know what I'm about to say. If you have any information at all that you want to provide, no matter how mundane, no matter how small, no matter how minute or insignificant that you may think it will be, please call Baltimore County Detectives at 410-307-2020 or Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP or you can text your tip that you want to provide to CRIMES uh, that's C-R-I-M-E-S or on your numeric keypad that will be 274-637. Once again, those numbers are Baltimore County Cold Case Detectives at 410-307-2020 or Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-7-LOCKUP. Uh, you can text your tip to uh, CRIMES, that's C-R-I-M-E-S. E S or two seven four six three seven on your numeric keypad. There is a cash reward of up to two thousand dollars for any information that can lead to an arrest or conviction in this unsolved homicide, and as always, you can remain anonymous. Thank you for tuning in this week. Please be sure to subscribe to this podcast via Spotify for updates on future spine-tingling, hair-raising, eye-popping episodes. And for paid subscribers, be sure to check out the real, the raw, the uncensored version of why I decided to start a true crime podcast. You can also check out my latest article and, uh, on that was featured on The Crime Report. A lot of people think that I just woke up one day and then boom, there's a podcast. But nope, that ain't even half of the truth. There's a real therapeutic message to this true crime world of gore and mayhem. And if you click on the episode entitled, 
why I do what I do, you'll understand more about why I'm so weird, so crazy, so fascinated with true crime. I also want my listeners to know that very, very, very soon, probably uh, the premiere of season nine, that the documentary version, the film version of this podcast episode in number one, which featured, uh, basically which focused on accused child murderers, Adon Canella and Paula Carpio Espinosa, will be released very, very, very soon. And when the documentary, which was produced by Savage Life Productions and filmed on location in Baltimore City, will be available for download, I will definitely keep you posted as to where you can download it. And while you're at it, stop on over to the new website, Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com. And Maryland is spelled MDS, Most Notorious Murders.com, where you can access all episodes of this podcast and check out the different seasons that we have focused on, like uh, relationship, husband and wife type of homicides, or even Maryland's infamous teen killers. You can also find links to all of my true crime books that are loosely related to this podcast entitled Maryland's Most Notorious Murders, 1990-2008, through 2008, Maryland's Unsolved Homicides, Volume 1, and my local bestsellers, Until I Get Caught, The True Story of a Serial Rapist in Baltimore, and Junkie, A True Baltimore Story, and also Child of Baltimore. You can also check me out on uh, Season 1 of Payback, which airs for the TV1 network. You can uh, watch me on the Oxygen Network for Black Widow Murders, where I profiled Maryland's female serial killer, Josephine Gray. Or you can check me out on TV1's Justice By Any Means, uh, TV1's Fatal Attraction, where I profiled the North Carolina child murderer, Peter Moses. Well, you can also find me hosting Killer Kids for the LMN Network, where I profiled teen killers Sarah Citroni and uh, Jason DeLong. Um, or you can also, like I said, check out the article that I recently uh, co-wrote for uh, the Crime Report. It should be the featured article. All you gotta do is go to www.thecrimereport.com. Um, once the season one documentary is available for download, you'll also be able to find the links here at Maryland's Most Notorious Murders.com. Please be sure to tune in next week where the season finale will the season finale of Parasite Killings will be featured. And if you're from Maryland then you should already know who should made the number one case or the most famous case of of Parasite that we have in the state. So please be sure to tune in next week where the most gruesome, high-profile homicide parasite case occurring in Maryland will be profiled, it will be examined, and it will be discussed on Maryland's Most Notorious Murders. And this has been a Savage Life production.